Welcome to the Free Range Preacher on Prayer podcast. Your host, as always, is Fred. Our desire is to encourage, exhort, and educate on biblical prayer through this podcast. The mission of the podcast is to help everyone God allows us to help achieve a growing, biblical, dynamic, and satisfying prayer life. If you have any questions, comments, or prayer requests, you can reach us at freerangeprayer at gmail.com. If you would like, you can make a positive review wherever you get your podcast. That would be appreciated. Welcome to today's episode of Free Range Preacher on Prayer Podcast. Worship is experiencing God in one's innermost being, all that I am, responding to all that He is. This is every believer's glorious occupation. Welcome to the Free Range Preacher on Prayer podcast. My name is Fred. That was a little different beginning than before. And I'm the host of the podcast. And through the podcast, we try to exhort, encourage, and educate on prayer. We're coming now to part two on worship. This episode is basically a brief look at the idea of worship, as is the case with the rest of this volume on the elements of worship, or on the elements of prayer, I'm sorry. And because of the incredible scope of the fundamentals that we're looking at. We're going to take a deeper look into all the four elements in the future. I was going to say obvious, but it may not be obvious to you, but we are going to do that. But it also causes for me a a struggle as far as where to begin and how much to cover for each episode. And knowing where to start and where to end is always a challenge for me because, as you know, I really do love prayer and do love to pray and, and teach on prayer. We opened with a quote from the Holman Old Testament Commentary on the Psalms. It's in Volume 2, Psalm 103. And obviously those writers speak more clearly and more succinctly than I do most of the time. And that's why I wanted to share that quote. But they do share uh, and reinforce the fact that worship is not only the centerpiece of our lives, it's the most critical thing we have to attain a dynamic, soul-satisfying biblical prayer life. And we've mentioned before that every biblical prayer that's of any length in the scripture contains confession, worship, thanksgiving, and intercession. So we've come to worship. We looked at confession, but we've come to worship now. And worship is, like I said, the centerpiece of what we do. And we've looked before and gone over the concept that worship is that chief end of prayer because it glorifies God, or the ultimate end of prayer because it glorifies God. And so we worship God for who he is. If that's all we had to worship him for, we would worship him because of who he is. We also worship him, though, for what he has done and his presence in our lives, the way he affects our lives. We're moved to even more and more profound worship as we grow in the knowledge of him. As we mature in Christ and apprehend more and more of what God has done for us personally, the worship grows exponentially. Today, we want to whet our appetite for biblical worship in prayer by looking at our call to worship, as it's expressed in Psalm 115. And then we'll look and we'll find David encouraging our worship through the admonition of his own soul. And then we'll look at the uh, worship, the spontaneous doxologies that we find in the New Testament, look at some of those. Then we'll take a glimpse into our eternal occupation. And when I say glimpse, I mean a glimpse. Because our eternal occupation is going to be adoration 
and reverence the eternal God or Savior, our Creator and Savior. As with the rest of Scripture, heartfelt worship is best exemplified when we see it in Scripture and then we flesh it out in our lives. But we see it in His beautiful Word to us. So as we go to Psalm 115, we read through the New American Standard Uh, 1977 version of the Bible. Psalm 150 reads, Praise the Lord. Praise the God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with a harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. But everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Actually, just as a side note, I've known a couple drummers who really like the loud and resounding cymbals. Psalm finishes with, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. I had to look this up because I've heard the phrase before, but a clarion call is a call to action. And this is a clarion call for worship if there ever was one. In review, the paramount reason for our existence is to glorify God. The ultimate end of why he created everything is for his own glory. And in Psalm 150, that basic truth of life is reinforced, and we're called to worship. And worship quickly, again, review from part one, is giving glory to God. It's not only, as I mentioned before, the centerpiece of our lives, but it uplifts and encourages our souls as we pray and experience eternal life here through worship, even in these mortal bodies. In verse one, then, we see our mandate, praise the Lord. We also see where we praise the Lord. We praise him in his sanctuary. In the very heavens, we are called to praise the Lord. And I take it from his sanctuary because he is everywhere all at once, that that includes all of creation here, the physical creation that we're in as well. So we worship God in his sanctuary. We worship God everywhere. Why do we worship? Because in verse 2, praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. And trying not, tr- not trying to be pedantic here, but we praise him for who he is. His excellent greatness, and for what he has done, his mighty deeds. Now, again, for the fun part, how can we praise him? Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. One of these days I might mention a, a lesson I learned in all that from the book of Habakkuk. For now, we praise God in full comprehensiveness. All music, every single thing that can make a sound, can be used, and probably should be used, to glorify God. And then who should worship? Verse 6 again, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And we'll even see a little bit later an allusion to all of creation calls forth his glory. Everything that has breath, even if they don't have, don't have the ability to communicate as humans do, and as angels do, as we will see. Everything that has breath praises the Lord. As we mentioned, our call is clear. Who he is, what he has done, and by every means at our disposal, we are called to go forth in our hearts, to go forth with our minds and our lips and our hearts to exalt our God. Strikingly, we will see, we're going to get a glimpse today of a couple of passages where angels are fulfilling that call to worship because they have breath. And they're called to worship as everything which has breath is called to worship. And maybe one of the most well-known passages in Scripture that we find on angels in general is in Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. So we read, 
in Isaiah. In the year King Uzziah of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. With two he flew, and one called out to another and said, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. Yahweh Sabaoth in the Hebrew. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Then the rest of the verse, sorry for that little interlude, but the rest of the verse says the whole earth is full of his glory. So we see again, everything, the whole earth is full of his glory. It brings him glory. The angels in heaven all worship God and glorify God, but specifically here, these called the seraphim stand around God's throne, if you will, heavenly throne room. And they worship him because of his holiness because of who he is, because he is intrinsically holy. They worship him because of his holiness. And actually, he's unique in that he's the only being in all of creation, in all of the universe, that is holy as he is holy, as emanates from himself, because part of his nature, who he is, he's holy. And the angels, when you think about that, actually worship from the same position as mankind does. They're calling out, to God's holiness, and like I said, that holiness that's intrinsic to his purpose, and he is holy in a way that none of his creation is, not even the angels. From the center of his being, he's holy. Biblically, there's a group of scholars who have what uh, study what they call systematic theology, and everybody should have some form of systematic theology, I really think, because it helps you put all the, the different parts of scripture together. But one of the disciplines is angelology the study of angels. And you'll find, as you put all the scriptures together about angels, that holiness is actually not intrinsic for them the way it's intrinsic for God. They are created beings, and they had the capacity to sin. I don't believe they have any more. We'll see why here in just a second. But remember, Satan was an angel, and he fell from heaven. We see that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And then we also see in Revelation 12, 4, that he took a third of the angels with him. So we have biblical proof that they are not intrinsically holy. They could have fallen, and a third of them did fall. We also read in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 5.21, that there seems to be elect angels. The word elect is, is used in the Old King James Version. In the New American Standard, 1977, chosen is, is used, the word that they put. So there are some angels that are chosen, two-thirds of them, in systematic theology, which is orthodox, since the fall of Satan and the third of angels who fell with him, those who didn't fall with him, that didn't engage in the de devil's selfishness, are now under special protection. So when Timothy says they're chosen or they're elect, we believe that God chose them now that they didn't fall and protects them. He keeps them from falling now. So by his grace and his mercies, they're protected from sinning. That doesn't make them intrinsically holy. That makes them under God's mercy. And so in Isaiah, we see the angels are called to worship. So because of his mercy and the fact that they are not intrinsically holy of themselves, they are called to worship God for who he is in the center of his being, holy, holy, holy. He's the only one who's holy in and of himself. A little later, we're going to take a look at angels in heaven worshiping God with the redeemed race of men. So we'll see that eternal occupation. We worship God 
And the angels are no different than mankind and anything else that has breath, any other thing that he's created, everything that has breath, like we saw in verse 6 of Psalm 115, is supposed to praise the Lord. By the grace of God, the angels have a special place. They are ever in a sensible, in his sensible presence. What I mean by that is they are always fully conscious, conscious of God. We don't always know his presence consciously. We have to set our mind on God to experience the presence of God. And most of the time, we don't even know what's going on around us. And we find those examples in the Bible as, as well. And so when we look even to the disciples, we know that they got sleepy when they should have been praying. That happens to us as well. Attention to God, concentration on that, it takes from us. And sometimes it's difficult and sometimes it even wears us out. We miss opportunities even to glorify God because we're not paying attention to spiritually what's going on around him. But again, as you think of the disciples, and you'll remember when he takes them into the Garden of Gethsemane, they're sleeping instead of praying. Now, you might also remember that's not the first time that they do that. At the Transfiguration in Luke 9, it's in the other Gospels as well, but in Luke 9, you find out that they were sleepy. And they got, at the very end, they got to see Jesus in his full glory with some Old Testament saints, if you recall. So that's part of our limitation as human beings in the flesh is that we don't have that immediate sense of God all the time. So we need to be reminded to worship. Ah, which is one good reason that the Free Range Preacher on Prayer podcast exists to remind us to worship. But even David, a man after God's own heart, the man after God's own heart, needed to exhort his own soul to pray and to worship. Now, we read from this a little bit earlier. I'm going to finish out the quote. Worship is experiencing God in one's innermost being. All that I am, responding to all that he is. This is every believer's glorious occupation. This is, again, from the Holman's Old Testament commentary on the psalm, or Psalm 103. And the rest of the, the passage, the paragraph reads this way. This is the heartbeat of Psalm 103. It's a hymn of praise to God that overflows from a heart supremely devoted to the Lord. In this psalm, David surveyed the love and compassion of God toward his people. In every line of his masterful work, he encouraged his soul to join him in praising God. Here, David speaks for us all. By speaking to his own soul, he actually speaks to each one of us, inviting us to lift our hearts and voices to God in worship. Some psalms are addressed to God, while others are addressed to other people. This psalm is addressed primarily to the psalmist himself. He calls upon himself to praise God. And what a wonderful chance David gives to us to see biblical prayerful worship. In Psalm 103, I'm going to read the whole thing. It reads this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his way to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. 
He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, he is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like the grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind passes over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, those who keep his covenant, who remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Wow, what an uplifting psalm. I just love it. And we have here all wrapped up beauty of being able to worship. And so David praises the Lord for his holiness and for his benefits, who he is and what he's done. You've heard that somewhere before. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. So we're blessing the Lord for his holiness, just like the angels, and then we're blessing the Lord for his benefits. Now, his benefits, what are they? Verse Starting in verse 3, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Salvation, we have in our pardon. We have the available ability from God for physical healing, for the life even redeemed from the sinful pit in which we were born. We have escape from that. We have redemption from that. Not escape, but redemption. He paid the price for us. And his children, as his children, we have the larger perspective of knowing in all our lives, we understand his loving kindness and compassion especially as we live our lives and we start putting things together. David continues, Who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. So again, David is worshiping God for his goodness, for his actions. And where does goodness flow? From where does goodness flow? James 1, I know you guys know this, 1, James chapter 1, 16 through 18, says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. So everything that's good in our lives comes from him. God blesses us most assuredly, and he also blesses us not only through those good things, but through the revelation of his word. What we're going to go, the verses that we're going to go over now actually could and probably have had books written about them, and they deserve books written about them, and multiple episodes at least from podcast, and perhaps in the future we'll be able to get to all of those. But David goes on. In verse 7, he says, he made known his way to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. He's made his way known to us. That's in his word. And what has he made known to us and them? The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He tells us who he is. 
in the New Testament, the book of John says, Jesus explains him. The Lord tells us, even in the Old Testament, who he is, but Jesus explains him in the New Testament. And then in verse 9, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. And his penchant, his bent, is to give us grace. We need to listen and believe it, but that's what he wants to do. Verse 10 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. All of mankind is actually under his mercies. We call that common grace. Because if he rewarded us, all of us, according to our iniquities, our lifespan would be, uh, to say the least, minimal. Because we would deserve death and judgment, the very first sin that we made, however young that is. My son was in junior high. He was talking to one of his favorite teachers about things and about the Lord and life. And this particular young man teacher had a daughter. And as they were discussing morality and sin, and my son asked this um, teacher, when did you teach your daughter to lie? And the answer, of course, is never. So even from a young age, we see sin. We see deceit in our hearts. And so if he was not, if we were not under his general mercy and under his common grace. Again, we would not be here very long. And then verse 11, David says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now, as for his children, his chosen ones, the redeemed, he completely removes our transgressions from us this is an illustration of that as far as the east is from the west and then he has fatherly love and compassion for us and i just love this passage because sometimes i think we forget verses 14 through 16 for he himself knows our frame he is mindful that we are but dust as for man his days are like grass as the flower of the field so he flourishes when the wind passes over it it is no more and its place acknowledges it no longer Oh, my friends, we need that grace and mercy, not only the common grace to all mankind, because that flows from his goodness as well, but he knows our hearts and he knows our desire for him. We talked about that way back in episode one. And he also knows our weaknesses. And we talked about that way back in episode one. But he knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust and he doesn't trample us under his feet. He came and died for us. And we have that common grace and then that special grace to the redeemed. David goes on in verse 17, but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and who remember his precepts to do them. Again, it's our special place before God to be redeemed. And because of that, because of his loving kindness, he gives us his righteousness. It's what the New Testament teaches. We have his righteousness imputed to us. And because of that, motivated by his loving kindness, we are enabled, we are able to fear him and to keep his word and to do his word. His incredible loving kindness is from everlasting. We're going to have eternity to find that out. And then verse 19, David goes on and says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. He is absolutely sovereign, the sovereign over all creation, the sovereign over all the world and all creation, no matter how vast it seems to us. He created it. He's the reason it exists for his own glory, and he is sovereign in it. And so the psalm now rises to a crescendo. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Angels 
are called to bless and worship. Verse 21, bless the Lord, you his host, you who serve him doing his will. All his hosts, I would include everything, not just the angels, not just, again, beings who are sentient and can express themselves, but everything serves him by doing his will. I should have looked it up. I didn't. There's a Psalm in Psalm 119 that says, all things are thy servants. Everything, everything created is his will. And we're all supposed to worship and bow down, and everything points to the adoration that he deserves. Verse 22, Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. All his works bring him glory. We just talked about that. But we can go to, to just reinforce that scripturally, we can go to Psalm uh, Psalm 19, I'm sorry, not 119, but Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Everything, sentient or not, glorifies him and shows the knowledge, the glory of Jesus, the glory of our Creator. And then David excitedly reminds his own soul, Bless the Lord, O my soul. So I hope that you love that Psalm, Psalm 103, as much as I do. And that you remember that even David needed to remind his own soul to worship God. The Psalms are inexhaustible, and we could reason them together forever. And in fact, we will. But for today, let's turn and move to the witness of worship in the New Testament. And I just love this because I can't always give voice the way I would love to give voice to praise God. But we do have in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, powered by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, bursting forth in adoration to God. And we call some of those doxologies. In Romans 11, 30-36, Paul says this, For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all disobedience, that his might, that he might show mercy to all. And just so you know, Paul's finished up talking about the children of Israel in Romans 9:10, and finishes up with 11. And that's what he's talking about. Because he's shown mercy to us, the possibility that they can see, the unbelievers can see and get that mercy as well. But in either case, whether they avail themselves of that mercy or not, God has shut up all disobedience, that he might show mercy to all. And so on one level or another, again, his common grace to the to the people who aren't redeemed, but they still get that common grace, and he's showing his mercy to all. And then Paul finishes with this doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Paul, exalting in our wonderful, incomprehensible salvation, reminds us Again, that all his works, everything God does, shuts up all our arguments and all our disobedience. And this is Paul calling out in reverence. His wisdom and knowledge is so much higher than ours that we can't even conceive of plumbing those depths, especially here on earth. But even in heaven, we have eternity to do that. And we applaud God. We worship God because we know our wisdom is nothing but foolishness. And then Paul quotes from the book of Isaiah, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Even in our arrogance, the arrogance that we naturally have as sinful human beings, none of us understand the mind and purposes of God. But we don't counsel with him. We don't inform him of anything. He is our creator. He has need of no one. He has need of nothing. 
So there's nothing that we have as humans that we can bargain with or accuse him of or coerce him into anything. He is God. He is alone the God of the universe. He is alone the one who gives and the one to whom we owe more than we could ever pay. Our ultimate declaration of his greatness is voiced in the confession that Paul ends with in verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What a glorious passage. What a chorus for us to join with our voices in prayer. To pray that to God. To tell that to God. To remind our souls that that's who he is and what he's done. Because from him and through him and to him are all things. And he deserves all the glory. And I love the end of Revelation where John says, And even so, come Lord Jesus. It's so glorious. Heaven's so glorious. God is so glorious that we want to be in his presence and we want him to come. Again, we see Paul in 1 Timothy rehearsing God's wonderful grace to him. This time it's to Paul particularly. And in this passage, he glorifies God's perfect patience in making him, Paul, an example of mercy. Paul witnesses in 1 Timothy 1, 16 and 17. And yet for this reason, I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost... Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And when he says foremost, he's not bragging that he was such a great person. He calls himself the foremost, the chief of sinners. And in order that we can all see that the chief of sinners, in Paul's eyes, certainly in Paul's eyes, Jesus demonstrated his perfect patience. And so what a glory for us, because we know we have that perfect patience as well. And he's an example. If Paul can be saved, in essence, that's what he's saying. Anybody can be saved. And so he calls out in verse 17, that humble admiration. His soul says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Who is God? Why do we worship him? Because he's eternal, immortal, invisible. He has perfect patience towards us. He's the only true God. And he deserves honor and glory forever and ever. And when we give our hearts to him and begin to understand him, we give him glory and honor in our prayers. One of my most common cries is, thank you, Jesus. As I'm reading these passages and looking at this worship, I'm just reminded just how short I fall of giving God the glory. It's due his name. That's why we are tutored in the Bible about worship. If we read through scripture, it will tutor us in the act of worship. Now we want to look at the little book of Jude. It's just one chapter. And again, we find Jude, God's child, crying out because of the works that God has done in his life. And those works bring worship. So in verses 20 through 22, Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on, our, on your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And Jude here knows he's being built up and he encourages us that we remember that we're being built up, having a holy faith, and we're able to pray, resting in the love of God, waiting for his promises. And then Jude bows in worship and says in verse 24 and 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the God, our Savior, 
the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now and forever. Amen. And we all sometimes get into those fears where we think we're stumbling. And again, I should have looked this up, but I didn't. In the Psalms, David says a couple of times, even though I stumbled, not going to fall because God is holding my hand. And in another place, he says, you pushed me violently, but I didn't fall headlong because God is the one who protects me. So he keeps us from stumbling. And think about this. Someday we are going to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. And personally, I can't wait for that to happen for me when I get to go to heaven and there will be no more any sin between me and my Savior. Boy, I can't even, I get chills. I can't even, I can only wonder at that joy. But we can praise God now through in that joy because we know that that's going to happen. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. And all those are his as well. All the glory is his. He is majestic. All the dominion is his. All the authority is his. In eternity past and in eternity in the future. I want to end our brief glimpse into the worship with just the occupation, this worship that actually brings me to tears. We are going to do throughout all eternity in heaven. In Revelation 4, 7 through 11, we find that John writes, And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Day and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who sits forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, because of thy will they existed and were created. Who is God? Almighty, holy, eternal. He is absolutely faithful, the one who is and who is to come, and we see his faithfulness there. And the twenty-four elders bow down in humility and thankfulness, for he alone is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power not only because of who he is, but because he's a rewarder of those who seek him. I'm afraid eternity won't even give us enough time to absolutely worship God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the way that we we will plumb those depths and exhaust that worship of him. But the good news for us who believe is we will have eternity to worship. Revelation 19 beginning chapter and verse 1 says, After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. For a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders And the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, small and great, 
and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And my beloved friends, that's a great way to just end this section of the uh, of the podcast. Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Lord our God, Almighty, reigns. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Welcome to the Free Range Preacher on Prayer podcast. Your host, as always, is Fred. Our desire is to encourage, exhort, and educate on biblical prayer through this podcast. The mission of the podcast is to help everyone God allows us to help achieve a growing, biblical, dynamic, and satisfying prayer life. If you have any questions, comments, or prayer requests, you can reach us at freerangeprayer at gmail.com. If you would like, you can make a positive review wherever you get your podcast. That would be appreciated. Welcome to today's episode of Free Range Preacher on Prayer Podcast.